welcome to Rising. Welcome to Tuesday morning. We have a fantastic show planned for you. And Brianna Joy Gray is here. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. It's good to be back. Wonderful to have you. What are we talking about today? Well, Robbie, yesterday, President Biden signed the bill formally ending the national COVID emergency, bringing an immediate end to the program after three years. The resolution passed the House despite almost 200 House Democrats voting against it at the White House's urging. Last year, the president claimed he strongly opposed the measure but came short of committing to actually vetoing it. The end of the health emergency comes just days after a pandemic-era measure prohibiting states from kicking people off Medicaid expired on Saturday, meaning some 15 million Americans are now at risk of being stripped of their health coverage. 2024 presidential candidate Marianne Williamson slammed the rollback on Twitter yesterday, quote, those 15 million live with the rolling emergency of hunger and lack of health care, whether COVID is spiking or not. Now, just hours after ending the national emergency yesterday, the Biden administration also announced a new $5 billion partnership with Big Pharma, of course, to develop new COVID vaccines and treatments. According to the Post, quote, Project Next Gen, the long-anticipated follow-up to Operation Warp Speed, would take a similar approach to partnering with private sector companies to expedite developments of vaccines and therapies. Scientists, public health experts, and politicians have called for the initiative, warning that existing therapies have steadily lost their effectiveness and that new ones are needed. First and foremost, I'm a little confused about why the government is trying to trade on Star Trek Goodwill with the name of these uh, big pharma project collaborations. <laughs> Warp Speed, Next Generation. Yeah, I don't like I don't like Operation Next Gen. That's <laughs> but, not a. But the main the main reason I think that people are going to object to Operation Next Gen is because it does feel like another really significant monetary investment, five billion dollars, for treatments that so far, since the initial vaccine, have failed to live up to what the expectations were in terms of how they're going to change the management of the uh, pandemic. So there was a lot of hope that um, updated new boosters would have increased efficacy against new strains. That didn't happen. We were hoping that some version of the boosters would have a better, a stronger effect on ending transmission, which is really the key to stopping the pandemic from spreading. And that didn't actually happen. And now there's this focus, and it might turn out this time, but now there's this focus on um, uh, these mucosal nasal vaccines, which uh, the hope is that they, because there's a number of mucosal sites, uh, sites where the vaccine uh, goes, you know, enters your body, that these kind of vaccines will be able to protect against a broader range of varieties. Yeah, I mean, that's a good theory, but they said they said the initial vaccines were going to be protective yeah. of infection. They said get boosted to, you know, help keep cases down. They said all these things that didn't pan out. Uh, look, maybe there are some people who would take it if it was a if it was a nasal inhaler. Yeah. Um, I actually I take a nasal inhaler daily for allergies. Mm -hmm. It really does help, mm -hmm. uh, especially as we approach the spring. I take it to, like, build up my protection from mm -hmm. spring allergies. It's a lifesaver. It really does help. Uh, so maybe the theories people would take that they don't like needles that was a, that was a theory some people had uh, uh, earlier on I, honestly I, I have a hard time imagining at this point there are people who haven't got va gotten vaccinated that there's a lot of people who haven't gotten vaccinated specifically because they just don't like needles mm -hmm. um, it seems unlikely to me you'll sell them on the idea of vaccination if it's the same like mRNA technology but just a different delivery mechanism look obviously we need you know if if private industry wants to invent new 
therapeutics, new new things to make us better off. That's all well and good. I am absolutely not for the government standing in the way of progress on that front. But what we're talking about is government funding. And then on the other end, what gets required? Because some of this stuff is, makes its way into the vaccine register, uh, registry where it has liability protection, mm -hmm. what our school is going to require, what our university campuses, which are still requiring the bivalent vaccine, mm -hmm. even though there are serious questions about whether it really has any additional protection um, over, the, uh, over the initial shots without taking into account if you've had COVID, how many times you've had COVID. All of those questions, you know, that sure. we raise here on the show, but nobody else seems to raise. Sure, yeah. And one of the fundamental contradictions that I'm really struggling with here is the idea that the pandemic is persisting to the extent that the government still needs to be investing significantly in these bio, these pharmaceutical products at the same time that it's going to end the COVID emergency status and basically leave people to the wolves, um, kicking or allowing 15 million people to be thrown off of Medicaid. It, it, mm -hmm. which, which is it? Is this a, a persistent issue that needs to be addressed and needs government invest, investment and 200 Democrats are going to vote against? but you're not going to veto it as president of the United States of America? Or is it this thing that we need to keep um, uh, investing all of this money in? And, and, I, and I will say, you know, Medicaid being, um, a, a, you know, an income-based, not entirely, but a largely income-based program means that before this pandemic, a lot of people would find themselves you know, coming into something that's, you know, sh on a short-term basis disqualified mm -hmm. them from receiving benefits. And that was why this, um, this COVID-era policy was supposed to create some consistency in care. Now, I think there's a legitimate argument that technically some of these COVID-era policies should end um, on mm -hmm. the basis of the kind of like the connection between COVID rates and, and things like that. But the problem is there were a lot of ongoing systemic issues in this country that predated COVID that aren't going away, that COVID was a temporary balm for, these COVID era policies were a temporary balm for. And now we have to get back to the business of figuring out how to help some of the poorest, most healthcare insecure sure. people in the country. And, and what I will say is, well, I'm, I'm sure you and I probably disagree on some of these programs and how robust they, they should be. It is not, it is inefficient, it is economically inefficient and destructive to like, you know, have, to have people eligible and then ineligible right. and then eligible again. The more paperwork you throw at people, the more you're just being wasteful. You're wasting their time and the time of government employees, frankly. Yes. There should be there should be continuity. Yes. It should be easy, simple, and available to. And then we, we talk about who should be eligible. But stop tweaking it and stop changing it so people lose cover. I mean, some of these people won't realize because I mean, it's confusing what it you're covered confusing. in for med medical. It's the most confusing stuff there is. So you can go to the doctor and find out. Oh wait, now I actually have to pay for this. I, I thought I was eligible. Wait, maybe I'm only eligible here. It's really, it's a headache. It's so, it's destructive of people's time, which is ultimately like the most finite resource there is. So it is just, it is not a good system. Um, so I don't, I don't think this is good. What do you, what do you make of um, Marianne Williamson hopping into the fray here and trying to distinguish herself um, from a potential Biden candidacy and, or potentially um, uh, the RFK Jr. presidency as well? I'm not sure, you know, what role he would play in this, but certainly a lot of voters are excited about the prospect of his more adversarial relationship to the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, absolutely. That will that will certainly be refreshing. Um, frankly, I think most of the voters who appreciate uh, a political figure having an adversarial relationship with uh, Big Pharma are Republican primary <laughs> voters at this point. So we'll see how he does, but it is certainly an interesting perspective to get out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll have more rising for you after this. Stick around.
Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic released a set of documents to the nation that shed light on the production and publication of a controversial scientific paper that helped shape the early public debate about the origin of COVID-19. Among some of the new information, the documents show Dr. Christian Anderson, a key author of the Proximal Origin paper, sent an email to an editor at the journal, Nature, to gauge her interest in publishing the paper. He noted in the email that he and his co-authors had been prompted in their efforts by Fauci, Collins, and Jeremy Farrar, then the leader of a major UK research institution called the Wellcome Trust and key organizer of the February 1st teleconference between the NIH officials and top scientists. This is all according to The Nation. Molecular biologist Alina Chan noted on Twitter uh, regarding the report, between mid-February and mid-March 2020, the proximal origin authors gained the magical ability to distinguish between a natural virus that emerged from the wildlife trade and a natural virus that emerged due to research activities. She goes on, during peer review at Nature in February 2020, the authors told the peer reviewers that escape of a natural virus from a lab could not be distinguished from an animal-to-human transfer in another environment. By March 2020, no lab-based scenario is listed as possible. So we already knew uh, a good amount of this, um, how the you know how the proximal origins paper came into being, and that Fauci, Francis Collins, and others had really pushed Christian Anderson to write it in the in the Nation reporting. Um, they all they now have I don't think we've exactly seen this email before mm -hmm. where he emails a journalist and an editor at Nature to say, hey, I would like to write this article. And he specifically says that I was I've been prompted to right. do this by Jeremy Farrar, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins and some others. Right. And it's interesting because just a few days before he sent this email, he had said that he was against weighing in on this debate at all. Yeah, even worse than that, he says, quote, our, and this is the email again, four days before he sends the one proposing the proximal origin paper. He says, four days before, our main work over the last couple of weeks has been focused on trying to disprove any type of lab theory. But we are at a crossroad where the scientific evidence isn't conclusive enough to say whether we have high confidence in any of the three main theories considered. So he goes on to say, as to publishing this document in a journal, I'm currently not in favor of doing so. I believe that publishing something that is open-ended could backfire at this stage. So knowing that they didn't really know, he says, I don't want to publish an article. And then a few days later, apparently at the, at the prompting of Fauci and these others, uh, went on to publish this proximal origin paper, which is notable because as the article also makes clear, this thing was cited everywhere. Apparently, uh, media outlets accessed online, uh, this, uh, sorry, it was cited by media outlets accessed online more than 5 million times in those early days. And it really was definitive in the kind of narrative building about what the more, most likely causation was here. One of these, uh, these people, Jeremy Farrar, uh, actually, who was not listed as a co-author of the paper, nevertheless had enough input on it that uh, Anderson sent it to him before it got published. Mm. And Farrar said, sorry to micromanage, micro-edit. Again, this is in the emails the nation has obtained. And I, I think I have seen this one before. But if Farrar says, would you be willing to change one sentence? The sentence is, it is unlikely that SARS-CoV-2 emerged through laboratory manipulation of an existing SARS coronavirus. That gets changed to, it is improbable. Mm. So it goes from unlikely to improbable. Mm -hmm. uh, which, again, is now not a conclusion that uh, multiple agencies of the federal government agree with. They do not think it is improbable. They think 
with low confidence. It is the more likely explanation for how COVID arose. So, you know, look, we're, we're looking at um, a lot of massaging of the message. <laughs> Uh, messaging <laughs> uh, going on here ab about what you were supposed to discuss. And I, I think it just raises the obvious question, were Fauci and people like him eager to shut the door on the conversation to lab leak because it would result in greater scrutiny of U.S. funding of controversial research in labs in China, also in the U.S., uh, uh, with respect to the manipulation of viruses. Does it bring yeah. the medical, the, the health establishment, the community, the scientific community, more scrutiny of, uh, of what they're doing? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And it, again, the, the issue here isn't that people can make mistakes or that there was ambiguity. The problem is that in the face of ambiguity, there was apparently a push in one direction. And we have to start asking questions about why that was, who was implicated. Is this all about liability concerns? Is it about the fact of US funding in these labs? Um, is it about a broader scientific interest in protecting the ability of people to continue to research, do this kind of research with more augmented safety precautions? Who knows? But this fundamental lack of transparency that has now we now know existed from the start of this pandemic is critical. It's crucial to why there wasn't the level of vaccine compliance, all kinds of compliance that might have actually had a better, uh, you know, positively affected the course of the pandemic. And while so much of the blame has been laid at the feet of politics and conservatives and so-called anti-vaxxers and things like that, and, and blame can lie where it lies, there also has been a real, I think, lack of ownership of the messaging role that the CDC and the government played in setting people up to basically not know who to believe. Right, and the media, you know, they ran with this. They, they as you said, it was cited that many times. It, it was used by the media in that classic kind of fact-checking, yes. you know, misinformation yes. sort of framing that the mainstream media has totally fallen in love with over the last five years. Like, oh, did you hear that COVID might have come out of a lab? Did you know you're spreading harmful, racist, conspiracy-minded mm -hmm. misinformation, possibly of foreign origin? Like, that, that is their automatic, they, they just slot that into the, the template and of how they what, discuss everything. And what we now know about the Twitter files and the relationship between yes. these government agencies and their coercive influence on and allegedly independent uh, social media companies and using that kind of information as a as a an excuse to to censor and you know limit information um, being able to be transmitted on these free apps, you know it's it is meaningful. Mm -hmm. It is important, and it did really contribute to this um, community of distrust that we're and now. And now every time you know <laughs> we keep having these uh, you know exclusive from some media outlets saying, oh, you know, the new scientists have found new reporting on raccoon dogs at, right. the, at the market. And, you know, this really, like, they, they, they're bought into the narrative because they were the ones enforcing it. Yeah. Because that's what Fauci and, and such people decided on. And, and then, you know, when people like Alina Chan actually get yeah. to, you know, look at the underlying data, they say, okay, well, this is this yeah, we, polluted we data. That... And, and debunked the, the coon dog story well <laughs> over a week ago. I was in a, in a car over the weekend, and I heard a radio report about the coon dog story telling it straight and faithfully and giving the impression that this was, you know, we're closer to understanding the origin of COVID because of coon dogs. And it really is frustrating how the information system works in this country. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. 
Well, the Washington Post is finally paying attention to the alarm bells surrounding gain-of-function research, the research at the heart of the lab leak theory. According to the Post, a growing number of scientists are reconsidering the dangers of prospecting for unknown viruses and conducting other high-stakes work with pathogens. This graphic details the $3 billion spent by U.S. government on pathogen research worldwide since 2012. And as Alina Chan points out, not all this money is devoted to virus hunting or risky experiments with novel viruses. Uh, I, I actually saw this headline yesterday. Uh, the, the headline here is, uh, Research with Exotic Viruses Risks a Deadly Outbreak, Scientists Warn. You think? <laughs> How, this is news to you now? Um, you know, this is a, this is the classic, like, should the scientists go into deep into caverns with bats in the in the for in the jungle and interact with creatures that would have had a low likelihood of, in, of encountering yeah. human beings and thus creating an outbreak? Should we go should we go do that in order to better understand them, thus creating making more likely the very conditions for an outbreak to happen, even without the manipulation of viruses, frankly? Sure. Look, I mean, it's difficult to imagine where Don't we would be. Don't go in the be... back cave. Don't go in the back cave. <laughs> well, it's difficult to imagine where we would be as a, as, a, as a species, as a society, if no one had ever gone anywhere or looked at anything or, or left their little mile uh, hut radius. I, I mean, I don't know. I think there, it's, it's a difficult balance of... You know, what if the next cure to cancer is found in a frog in the Amazon rainforest? Are we not supposed to go there because there might also be a virus in the Amazon rainforest that can bite you and, and spread and, and cause a pandemic? I don't know about all of that. I think I, I think there's a much stronger case against the manipulation of the virus than simply going into to, a new we're frontier. We're trying to create new superheroes. You get bitten by the radioactive <laughs> bat and you become Batman. Look, the, the I'm, I'm, I'm mixing the origins of several superheroes here. The, the problem isn't getting, getting bit by, bitten by a bat. It's being bitten by the wrong bat, allegedly, <laughs> according okay. to Robbie, the okay. comic expert. Okay. But no, look, I, look, obviously it would make sense for there to be a reining in of the funding of uh, uh, vir viral manipulation Especially given that we know so much about the failures of um, protective guidelines in these very labs. So if anything, before they start these things back up again, they really need to take a, a good hard look of whether they're adequately funded and there's adequate protections for the people who are doing this kind of research to make sure that these things don't escape. And as I've said before, I don't know if it's the, Ant uh, the Arctic or the Antarctic, but they should probably put these things far, yes. far away Antarctica. so that even if they do leave. I just, I, I just want to read quickly from, the, from this story. The Thai researchers... Uh, would approach the caves and roosting trees at dusk, just as the nocturnal inhabitants, the bats, were beginning to stir, work until dawn, catching some in nets, grasping them with gloved hands so that the bodily fluids could be collected on swabs for analysis. Sometimes this, this person who was interviewed, this, mm -hmm. this Thai researcher, removed his cumbersome rubber gloves to make the task easier. In the early days, we didn't think it was that harmful. <laughs> hmm. Look, maybe, maybe <laughs> all that Thai researcher needs is better gloves. <laughs> But maybe, he, maybe to your point, you just shouldn't be doing it at all. Oh. I'll leave that to the scientists to decide. <laughs> maybe right. that's a bad idea. <laughs> More rising right after this. Speculation continues to mount over who's behind the leak of classified defense documents related to U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine. One former Pentagon official pointed to an inside job in an interview with the Daily Mail. He claims it's the only explanation, as many of the documents were, quote, in U.S. hands. 
Meanwhile, Ukraine is blaming Russia for the leak. That sounds familiar. According to The Hill, on Sunday, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry's intelligence representatives accused Russia of doctoring the photos via Photoshop. Now, that does appear to be the case. So, so the reason to think it was a U.S. someone, some U.S. official leaked it. Is that it? it this seems to be the U.S. version of the document mm. that says it's a photograph of the doc. It's photographs of a hundred documents that says like four U.S. eyes only. Um, now, apparently, the only um, number that was really doctored is an inflation of the Ukrainian casualties. So you might think that would be uh, Russia would have a reason to do that. The documents make it look like Ukraine is is in not in a great position, which is kind of already known, but it, it, uh, I, I think that it brings that into clearer focus, that the Ukrainians have lost a lot of people that, you know, even if we continue to arm them, they're going to run—there are not going to be able-bodied people to, to take up arms sure. against Russia. Um, of course, the counter-argument is that if Ukraine, the Ukrainians aren't doing very well, and then if in particular they are not doing well and perhaps experiencing casualties because mm -hmm. they don't have enough uh, weaponry support, then that's an argument for Americans uh, giving more lethal aid to the country. This is a position that uh, journalist Aaron Mate has taken, asking, you know, in a tweet, or to promote more weapons. This leak, for example, would make the case uh, for the U.S. to escalate military aid. And when you look at the framing of these leaks by some of the mainstream papers. The Washington Post uh, tweeted out, leaked U.S. military and intelligence documents indicate alarming Ukrainian shortfalls in Western-supplied weaponry, mm -hmm. especially ammunition and air defense. Um, New York Times framed it as, Ukraine needs ammunitions influx to boost its air defense and keep Russia from changing the course of the war, leaked Pentagon documents suggest. And of course, that's, that's the, the media's perspective. The reason I don't quite buy that that would be the motivation of the leaking party is mm -hmm. that why wouldn't they leak this directly to a media outlet then? Mm -hmm. Like the, the, me the mechanism of this leak is that these documents sat on Discord for over a month mm -hmm. before they were noticed by the media, by government, et cetera. That honestly suggests like a lack of clarity of purpose behind whoever's doing it. Like if they want, if the person doing this leak, if their perspective is I need to drum up public support for this war, then the way you handle this, if you're at all competent, is you, you, right, you would go to someone, a reporter, a, a very hawkish pro-Ukrainian reporter at the New York Times or the Washington Post and say, I have bombshell intelligence mm. showing that Ukraine is in danger of falling unless the U.S. commits massive more resources to it. I'm going to share this scoop with you. Yeah, that would be the framing of yeah, the story. Yeah. That would be — it just kind of sat there until it got attention. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they should give it to the guys who wrote about the Nord Stream yacht. Sure, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but... but Maybe the leaker doesn't know that, but... Well, the, on the other side of it, though, it is difficult for me to see really what the Russian interests are here. And, of course, there's other parties mm -hmm. in the world beyond America and Well, Russia. yes, in fact, we share intelligence with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, this, they're called the Five Eyes. Mm. We have we have an agreement to share intelligence. Those people are all furious about this because they think US, the U.S. can't be trusted. But, of course, it, it could very well be a, a leak from one of their intelligence agencies I mean, as well. There's also an argument there has been a lot of scrutiny from, uh, you know, a lot of left reporters like Aaron Maté about the, the relationship, the cozy relationship that seems to exist between U.S. intelligence agencies and these newspapers. Yes. And it, it could be the case that putting that little bit of extra distance, saying, oh, we found it on a Discord, is a way to undermine the presumption that they're basically just printing out, um, you know, deep state 
reports as as news. But it does feel as though, I mean, I, I understand the argument that this helps Russia's negotiating position if uh, Ukraine is perceived to be not doing very well. But even in the framing of these articles, like the Washington Post um, tweet that I read, I cut, up, cut it off before the end, where they say, you know, there, there are these weapons shortfalls quote, even as Ukraine shows deep, uh, even as there is deep Amer American penetration into Russian plans, equipment, and manpower, even as even as America mm -hmm. is doing doing the thing, there's still a, a very positive, I think, perhaps overly rosy picture of what and Ukraine is up to. My perspective is, look, the American people just, they're paying for this. They just deserve the truth. We deserve to know exactly what the state of the, the reality of the war is in Ukraine, whatever our government thinks it is, we deserve to know that. So I, I, I'm I'm happy that this leak shows us that the Ukrainian position is not as strong as our government has concluded. Uh, now, if, if the American people think this is a really important thing and we should commit all the resources available to continuing this war, okay, fine. I wouldn't agree with that. And in fact, the American people don't agree with that either. Right. What this shows is that the Biden administration's policy of whatever it takes, as long as it takes, does not make any sense. There should be a ceasefire immediately, even if that solidifies Russia controlling the, the part of, of Ukraine that it has under its control now. Uh, remember, the Biden administration said they're totally unwilling. Th there should be no ceasefire right. because they don't, wanna, they, they don't want to give Seat any rounds. legitimacy yeah. to the, whatever, 17 percent of the country that it's under Russian control. That's yeah. what it was at the time the ceasefire was being considered. That is not a good strategy because Russia can still commit resources to this. We, we could be we could be forcing to we could eventually have to accept a ceasefire when they control the entire country. Like right. Well, let's you not brought get up, to that point. You brought up the perspective of the American people. Uh, they are overwhelmingly uh, not for increased military aid to Ukraine. However, in a new interview, House Leader Kevin McCarthy threw his weight behind the Biden administration's continuing support of the war in Ukraine. This is a stark about face from last year when he pledged to halt the administration's commitment to sending blank checks overseas. Let's watch. What's happening in Ukraine is an atrocity, and I think Ukraine, not just Ukraine, the world has to win there. What Russia has done is wrong. In a phrase that I use a blank check, I use that for anything. I look at every dollar uh, of taxpayers that we would use, but the one thing I know that in Ukraine we have to win because it also would uh, save Taiwan at the same time. Yeah, that's not uh, encouraging at all, given the commitments he made to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, when he was running for speaker, he said he would take this seriously. Um, look, it's not as simple as winning or losing. It, it's going to be kind of winning and kind of losing. Like, that's the reality of war, because we're not, going to, we're not going to topple Vladimir Putin's government. We're not committing our own troops. We're not declaring war on Russia. You want to do that? You want to have war with Russia? Of course not. They're not voting for that. Yeah. They're, they're, I understand help, I understand that Ukraine is the victims of what's happening here. But my perspective would be, let's bring this to an end as soon as possible, even if that is not the absolutely ideal win for Ukraine and for the Western world, um, which is what I think, which is especially what Republican voters want. Yeah. The people who put him there, the people who gave him the House majority position, the speaker position, mm -hmm. um, want, you know, as he said, not a blank check. But then he kind of says, well, but we have to win. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm sorry, exactly but th this is a said. critique a, a lot of folks have been making, a lot of independents, you know, I, I can speak only from my position in the left chair, a lot of leftists have been making that as much as it might be true that there is more anti-war, there are more anti-war vo voices, 
and among elected officials on the right, the leadership of the Republican Party is, as it always has been, very pro-war, as is the leadership of the Democratic Party. The two corporate yeah. systems are not getting you out of a war posture. And the allusion to Taiwan, the implication that this, you know, that what, unless we give a blank check to Ukraine, unless there is an endless funding and support for Ukraine, that there, it sends a signal that we're not willing to go to World War III over Taiwan. What, what is the flip side of that? That we 100% yeah. are going to defend, enter into a, a conflict potentially with China over time? I mean, th this is the posture that everybody is ready for and why so many people have been skepticism of the, skeptical of this idea that there is a genuine anti-war commitment. A lot of folks have been saying that conservatives have been solely pivoting from a war in Ukraine to a war with China, and that is an escalation, not a de-escalation as it's been framed so far. People have to keep their eyes on the ball. Kevin McCarthy wasn't even doing an e either or there. He was doing a both and. Both and, exactly. Yeah. Don't like to see it. More rising right after this. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre dodged several reporters' questions about why President Biden doesn't participate in formal press conferences. Here's what she had to say. Is the administration trying to protect the president from our questions? Uh, please, I answer Absolutely that question. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So why is the lack of any interaction in a formal setting to have a press conference? Uh, I mean, the president takes shouted questions. I, I understand, John. I understand. I understand. I have dealt with this question about three times already. I understand. It is, it is, it is uh, the job of you all to ask this question to me. Totally get that. And that's not... A problem at all, um, but certainly uh, the president many times has has stand has stood in front of all of you, has taken questions uh, on his own because he wanted uh, to see what was all on your minds. He wanted to see what the questions you all were going to ask him, and he wanted to answer them directly. That has happened multiple times, many times uh, during this administration, and that will certainly continue uh, to be. When it comes to a formal press conference, I don't have anything to share with you at this time. Jean-Pierre went on to repeat her claim that the president takes shouted questions from reporters, something the White House press corps couldn't help but voice their disagreement with. Here's a little more of that exchange. So I'll say this. It is also unprecedented that a president takes as many shouted questions as this president has. And he no, has. No, 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 I, I no. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll certainly, we'll certainly get the data and share that with all of you. I hear, John. Yeah. I hear your question. I heard Zeke's question. I hear you. I hear you on the press conference, on a formal press conference. We get this probably every couple of months when you guys ask us about a formal press conference. I don't have anything to share with all of you at this time. According to reports, Biden has managed to sidestep the media more than his predecessors. Data compiled by the American Presidency Project shows that Biden has held an average of 10 and a half press conferences per year since he's been in office. The last president to have fewer on average was Ronald Reagan, with just under six per year. Now, obviously, Trump had this combative love-hate relationship with him. He loved giving press conferences. He loved engaging with the press. He loved feuding with them, and that was, it was good for everyone. The feuding with the press was good for the press because, you know, it helped feed into their, you know, Donald Trump is uh, trying to destroy the media, their, their viewers loved it. it. It then helped Trump on right-wing media say, look how he actually fights. You know, he doesn't, like other Republicans just take it from the media, but he actually pushes back. He actually stands up. Everyone was benefiting from it. Um, but that was kind of a unique arrangement, even if other presidents have also spoken to the press more than Biden himself. Biden's just kind of old. 
Yeah. Hired doesn't the, doesn't speak with is not very interesting well, when he's, he speaks he's to the press. Pro. Honestly, Look, the man was known for his gas. Yeah. That anybody knew what was up with him before he became. Obama's VP is that he's gaff prone and he did the crime bill. You know, in your your insight about Donald Trump is completely right. Apparently, Trump did on average twice as many uh, formal press conferences as Joe Biden. Joe Biden really ranks at the bottom here. And I got to say, the comparison to Ronald Reagan isn't a favorable one, given some of the reasons why Reagan stopped doing press conferences due to his own cognitive decline. So that those are not the kind of rumors. That's not the kind of um, you know, inferences mm -hmm. that uh, Biden wants the public to be drawing here. But from a kind of administration perspective, I mean, as a member of the press, I, I'm obviously invested in seeing him um, submit to more questions. But from an administration perspective, I completely understand why strategically they would rather take some angry questions about why Biden isn't at the podium than have to deal with the fallout from what Biden may or may not say at the, at the podium. Because remember, this is a man who very successfully ran and beat Donald Trump in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic, not getting before the public very often, very famously right. kind of running from the basement. Right, he doesn't need them. And in fact, obviously the press is extremely supportive. The mainstream press is extremely supportive of Joe Biden already. He doesn't like need to do more to get them on his side. Mm -hmm. They're very much on his side. Um, yes, he's not particularly eloquent. He doesn't perform amazingly. It's not, frankly, he doesn't even really make news as much as you would think the president does every now and then. He has, you know, every now and then he does respond to a shout of questions. I think that that famous uh, when he actually accused the social media companies, Facebook in particular, of killing people because they were not censoring more COVID-related misinformation. Um, I believe that was a shouted question mm -hmm. as he was boarding or deboarding mm -hmm. um, Air Force One from reporters where he, he kind of on, off the cuff responded to that, um, which, you know, you, you could argue that was a, that was a, a bad thing. That that helped uh, probably make the social media companies feel like the pressure on them was even even more uh, pronounced because the president of the United States was going to come after him, uh, come after them theoretically with all the might of the federal government if they didn't comply with what the CDC was telling them to yeah. do. But uh, it's that sort of thing that he he does right respond to shouted questions every now and then. Right, and, and I, I, I the exchange in which he was critical of Bibi Netanyahu over the. Uh, a judiciary coup that he's planning and the protests in Israel it definitely happened outside. I remember that interview happening outside. I think that might have been a rather informal um, mm. press exchange as well. But it was, it did make news. That was a big one that, that garnered a pushback from Netanyahu and was reported as a kind of shift in U.S.-Israel relations, um, a, a small crack in an otherwise very tight um, relationship. And I wonder if there is any relationship between the pushback um, that Biden might have gotten for saying that, whether that was something he was supposed to say, whether that was one of his kind of extemporaneous um, uh, truth-telling moments. Uh, it, it's not clear, but it, it, the timing of that is interesting, that the last time I remember him, at least, really saying something to the public was to give a comment that had potentially significant geopolitical implications and which elicited a pretty strong response from the, the, the leader of one of our ally, closest allies. Yeah, he just doesn't. He doesn't have a natural uh, ability to do it very well. Uh, he, you know, he again. He's an older man. It is. It's disorienting getting a lot of you know questions at once, being in front of the crowd. Um, 
Karine Jean-Pierre, you know, what was she, she's just, she's spinning, obviously, because he, it is self-evident that he does not talk to the press as much as other presidents did. Right. And she's trying to spin that, and there's just no way to spin that. Yeah, also, if you're going to say that, if you're going to say that the the reason is he takes more shouted questions than other presidents, you need to have some numbers. Because when she said that, and the press like, said, no, nah. no. <laughs> I mean, that is not a good look. And again, during COVID, they had the explanation of, it's COVID, yeah. he's an older guy, we're trying to protect him. Although, the start of, at the start of COVID, right, Trump did a press conference. Remember those? They were, uh, sure. were, they, I mean, they were not were they quite, they were not daily, they were, both of they were weekly or maybe more than weekly? We, we know that Trump has perfect health. I've blanked this entire <laughs> time period from my <laughs> you, you, memory. You but can't expect that That's when Trump, the, the bleach remark happened. Yeah, Trump, he had the bleach, no. <laughs> Trump has perfect health. His doctor told him he's the healthiest man on the planet. His in, insides yeah. are preserved by his a diet of <laughs> fast food. The man is never going to die. I don't expect Joe Biden to make himself as vulnerable to these things as sure. Donald Trump. Uh, however, that was a built-in excuse that I think pacified people who might otherwise view something like this as kind of anti-democratic or inappropriate. So the White House needs to come up with something else that doesn't raise the implication that he is just un not up to the task. Yeah, they should get right on that. <laughs> uh, we will have more rising right after this. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre hit the brakes on suggestions that the Biden administration could ignore a Texas federal judge's ruling against the FDA's approval of the abortion pill, Mifepristone. Let's listen. EOC suggests that the administration should just ignore the ruling. And she said that, quote, we know that the executive branch has an enforcement discretion. Is that true? So this is similar, I think, to what Terry was asking me. Look, we understand the frustration, right? We get the frustration regarding this decision, absolutely. Uh, and that's why we were quick to act. Uh, that's why uh, you saw DOJ take action. Uh, we, basically what I said to Terry, we stand by FDA's approval of Mifeprestone, and we are prepared to have a legal, a long legal fight here. That is our commitment to women out there. That is our commitment uh, to Americans uh, across the country. Uh, but I'll say this, you know, it, it is dangerous. It, but as a, a precedent, uh, as a dangerous precedent uh, is set for a court to set aside the FDA's uh, expert judgment regarding a drug safe safety and efficiency, it, it would also set a dangerous precedent for this administration to disregard right uh, a binding decision. Biden's apparent unwillingness to consider ignoring the court ruling goes against what his own Secretary of Health and Human Services suggested. Let's take a look at this. But are, are you taking it off the table that uh, you will recommend the FDA ignore a ban? Everything is on the table. The president said that way back when the Dobbs decision came out. Every option is on the table. Now, Jean-Pierre's pushback comes after several top Democrats have urged Biden to ignore the Texas ruling, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says the courts don't have legal authority over the FDA. That I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling, I think that we, you know, the courts have the legitimacy and they rely on the legitimacy of their rulings. And what they are currently doing is engaged in an unprecedented and dramatic erosion of the legitimacy of the courts. They, it, it is the justices themselves through the deeply partisan and unfounded nature of these rulings that are undermining their own enforcement. So I, what she's saying is 
technically true that the court obviously doesn't have its own enforcement mechanism and that it, the courts always have relied on the legitimacy uh, of the state being behind them. And that that is part of the checks and balances in this delicate dance where we have norms that are controlling much of how this country is run as opposed to other things. Now, I think the argument is that she is getting over her skis because at the end of the day, um, this is a pause on the FDA um, you know, uh, vetting of this drug. It was appealable within eight days. The Biden administration has appealed this. It's not clear that this, this hasn't run its course within regular legal right. means, so this does feel somewhat premature. Um, it's worth focusing, uh, also make, taking a moment to acknowledge what this drug actually does, but did, did you have something? Did you have no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, you know, the, the Biden administration, right, is working to appeal this. Um, I, I, I don't think this is a very good decision. I'm, I'm not at all persuaded that a, that a higher court, even a, even a right-leaning court, would agree with this decision. This is a drug that has been authorized for 23 years. Um, uh, you know, tackling abortion through this mechanism, through like through approval of a drug, again, it's been approved already for 23 right. years. This seems like a pretty tortured way to go about um, enacting policy through ju the judiciary. So I understand the frustration, but yes, le like let it play out seems like the the right way to react here instead of going full like Andrew Jackson. The court has made their decision, <laughs> but I will continue to butcher Native Americans if I feel like it. Yeah, and look, if if it gets to the point where this is successful. I, I, I respect the position of saying nothing's off the table. I think that's just good negotiating tactics. But kind of affirmatively putting forward your own desire to undermine the courts when the Republicans, frankly, in this context, or at least the ones involved here, are doing a good job of that of their own. So to your point, this is something that was approved 23 years ago through formal yeah. administrative processes with no issues that has been used very safely. It's safer than Viagra. Many people have been pointing out, although, of course, drugs like Viagra that appeal to the interest of men don't seem to come under the same scrutiny as reproductive drugs. It's a drug that is used not just for abortions, but for women who have experienced uh, suffered miscarriages so that it, it comes between them and their ability to get medical care and to deal with uh, uh, the loss of their child and, and to you know, process that and get it out of them without more draconian means. There is one other drug that does something similar that is an alternative that people can be using in the interim. But given the fact that this was a lawsuit that was brought by a conservative Christian organization, um, the Alliance Defending uh, Freedom, a, a conservative legal advocacy group that has had as its mission undermining the uh, right to access uh, uh, abortion abortions, generally speaking, that they form-shopped and found a sympathetic conservative judge who has also advocated in his personal life for um, against abortion rights. This, this is the kind of strategy that is bearing fruit and which people have been using, which ultimately resulted in the Dobbs decision, right? So I don't think it's irrational for people to be concerned that this strategy works. And as a lot of people have been talking about in the context of the um, ProPublica story about Clarence Thomas taking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps millions of dollars worth of gifts from this particular conservative billionaire donor. Um, that I'm taking trips with this donor. Yeah. Who's a 
Yeah, that's what I said. Yes. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of trips from this person um, that were not disclosed. That, you know, Clarence Thomas as a person is someone who has, in his jurisprudence, written about the fact that he thinks that there's absolutely no problem with um, uh, money in, in politics, that money is fully speech, that unless it's a literal bribe with an explicit quid pro quo, there's nothing coercive about the influence of money in politics. And his, just, his um, clerks, Clarence Thomas is a longest-serving justice and has more clerks that have become federal uh, judges themselves than anybody else in the court. So that's the kind of influence bubble that we're looking at here. So the idea that this could successfully run up through I mean, the federal courts and find more sympathetic judges is not impossible. Well, sure. But I, I, I don't think Clarence Thomas's opinions are really—like, I, I, I just don't believe that they're affected by the trips he takes with this person. I mean, he no, is I, sincerely committed I, I don't to think his so conservative either. worldview. I think his choice to take the view. trips is indicative of his worldview, which well, is that there's no such thing as a—I mean, there's no such thing as negative influence of money in politics. It's, it's a, I don't think his worldview is a taken. secret. No. It's, it's right. just being— broadcasted and made obvious um, by his own personal behavior and his belief that there there's no such thing as influence peddling. But my, my understanding is that most Americans have a very good grasp of um, corruption. Uh, they're very frustrated by high levels of government corruption. Uh, they were had a, a significant appetite for uh, figures like Bernie talking about how corrupt the government was and for figures like Trump talking about how corrupt the government was and how he was going to clean the swamp. And establishment politicians saying, hey, I just took the money. It doesn't mean I don't have, I have to do anything with it, is not a message that I have observed historically goes on very well with the American public. So I agree with you. I don't think that buying, uh, you know, paying, you know, thousands of dollars for a giant bust for Clarence Thomas's uh, uh, Catholic school or paying $500,000 uh, for a yacht trip or these um, airplane private jet trips affects Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, he, that he needs that to have any certain kind of opinion. But I do think it's indicative of the impunity with which a lot of uh, elites um, who went to Ivy League elite institutions like Clarence Thomas did, who have lived a very elite life for a very long time, thumb their nose at um, the corruption that ordinary Americans experience every day to their detriment. I mean, I just don't think it's effective. I mean, he's married to a Republican activist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is its own, uh, maybe, I, that's probably the more likely way there's influence, and, and that is all sorts of problematic because yeah. of the things uh, his wife has done and said, et cetera. I don't really believe that um, whatever his relationship with this person, maybe it, if it violates some ethics rule, fine, it violates some ethics rule. Um, I, I think he is a pretty, you know, he has his philosophy about how the, his conservative views, what his, his Supreme Court views are. Um, I don't really think it's being yeah. influenced in this Well, case, I only but. brought it up to say that he has an incredible amount of influence and that his justices, yeah. um, with all of his political views, who, who share his political outlook, broadly speaking, or his clerks, rather, who share his political outlook, are numerous uh, in the federal court system. And he, in the Federalist Society, uh, the uh, Leo, who he was also pictured with on some of these trips, um, have done a really incredible job at seating the federal court system with people who are very much ideologically aligned. So while I completely agree with you that this is a complete miscarriage of justice and um, supplementing an administrative process with an activist right-wing judge um, who has apparently Googled this drug and decided that he knows better with the, than the FDA in terms of health and safety issues, it is possible that this is the world we live in and that these kinds of decisions are 
are affirmed at higher levels, including on the Supreme Court level. So we'll, we'll have to follow this one. Yeah, we'll have to see. I have a feeling it won't be, but we will see more rising right after this. Well, perhaps the FBI has flagged you as an extremist. If so, I'm looking at new reporting from the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. Brianna, this is pretty hysterical. <laughs> they filed a, a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI and got these documents showing that the FBI is, is listing these terms that have become pretty common internet parlance uh, mm -hmm. to, to refer to various things. Uh, you know, they're, I'd say they're like, right-wing online terms, but that they're on a list of things associated with violent racially or ethnically motivated extremism. And uh, there's a lot of talk about incels in here, the involuntary celibate people and their penchant for <laughs> violence. Um, yeah, they, it's kind of funny. They're, they've listed these terms that are a, quote, indication of involuntary celibate violent extremism, which is a designation that I'm just learning exists, or racially and ethically motivated extremism. So these are people extremism. who are not having sex, but wish they were having sex. Yeah, these that's what an involuntary yes. celibate I'm is, for those that, of you who don't, who don't know. And they have specifically ne more neural terms, like height cells and bald cells, people who feel like it's their short stature or lack of hair that is causing them to have a lack of success with women. And so the Probably idea accurate. is that by tracking by tracking these kinds of terms, they can better assess people who present some um, Chad Chad right. is on this list. Uh, looks maxing, which I've never heard before. Which apparently is just like working out. looking better, yeah. uh, maximizing your uh, appearance. Uh, Pretty and, funny. And so look, I, I will say this. <laughs> I, I do think that there is a broader cultural and social crisis afoot that is driven by economic trends, um, generational trends where millennials and Gen Zers are set to do worse than the generations before them. Um, historical goals, uh, life goals, like marriage and children at certain ages, home ownership, uh, professional uh, attainment is just not happening. And as a consequence, people are increasingly isolated. They do live more online, and they have communities that in which they support each other, but sometimes which become, can become toxic, and which attribute the reasons for their lack of traditional success to um, women being horrible. There's a lot of misogyny. Um, we saw some of this ideology coming out in the, what was it, the Santa Barbara shooter who had that first big manifesto that everyone was pouring over, Elliot Rogers. Yes, he that was an example was, of a violent incel. It right. was very much based in incel ideology. Right. So it's not, case. it's not, in that one it's not that there's case. no, yeah, sure, it's, it's one specific case. I'm not sure to the extent to which it's more broad, broadly spread. Um, but I, I do, I'm not saying, I just want to validate that there is a, um, there is a real phenomenon that these people are reacting to, that they aren't just angry in a vacuum. Well, sure. But here's the thing. Like these, a lot of these terms, based and red pill, yeah. are terms now that maybe they start as like very fringe um, sure. online things that are disproportionately likely to be used by, I guess, what the FBI would characterize as extremists. Although, you know, the FBI likes to characterize very broadly extremist groups. Sure. Time and time again, we find out that these extremist groups like 
are not actually planning any violence, or to the extent they're planning violence, it is being coordinated by Black people being paid by the FBI. Group. Right, right. It's yeah. all it's all kind of nonsense. Um, but these terms, like word, the meaning of words, change. The use of words change over time. These are now terms that are like actually pretty commonly used in, in ways that have nothing to do with racially or ethnically motivated violence. In fact, in ways that have nothing to do with race whatsoever. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I said the other day that like. I'd finally red pilled my dog that he's not getting yeah, breakfast before and 7 a.m. Yeah, red pilled were never <laughs> racial terms. Um, and in fact, the idea of being red pilled has been very much adopted and embraced by the right, but it is from the movie, the idea is just that your eyes are open. It basically means woke. Yeah. <laughs> Red pill literally means, means you like you it. got woke. You like you, you, the truth of the world has been revealed to you mm -hmm. and you, you see past the superficial veneer of what society wants you to understand. Literally, they're synonyms. So um, there's, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole pill dichotomy too now, right? Because if you're, if you're, um, you can be well, because blue pilled is to go the other way. Yeah. But then I, I've heard both black pilled and doom pilled for people who are just like everything sucks. I give yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a white pill. I don't actually even know what that means. Maybe that one is racially like motivated. A, <laughs> honestly, I think that's like a centristy one. But I don't have. A, I've looked for like a. I want a list of the pills and what they correspond to. Like, you know, yeah, like their like, power ups or something. Yeah, I, I totally take your point there. Like these ter terms like based are incredibly mainstream. The concept of being an in incel is very mainstream. I'm not saying that there aren't probably specific chat groups and things, other terms that can be used in, a, in, a, mm -hmm. in conjunction with these terms that might yield actual results. But if the FBI thinks they're just going to scroll through people using the word incel or based and that not to be an, an incredible suck of their time and resources. And we already know the FBI flag, again, had constant communications with social media platforms flagging for them content that they think is not ideal. So, you know, are, are they acting on their their fervent belief that use of based and red-pilled mm -hmm. is evidence of racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism? Yeah. I mean, that's I, I should say also that nonsense. I, you know, I host a call-in show on the, on the app Call-In, and I did have, after one of the shooting events, I forget which one now, many months ago, uh, I had a show where two separate people called in talking about how when they were in high school, and they were relatively young, so this was just a few years ago for them, they came very close to being active shooters. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one of the guys in particular talked about bullying he received because, in part, he was short and mm -hmm. felt like... The, the barriers to him to actually getting a partner, you know, that women could see past all kinds of things, but there was absolutely nothing that he could do about his height. You can't, what do you call it, max, looks max, you know, height outside of some very expensive and very painful surgeries. And, you know, it was, it was very sympathetic and very hard to listen to. And it made me think after that, you know, how glib we are about the experience of feeling like there's something immutable about yourself that makes you um, undesirable to mm. partners um, and how isolating that experience can be and what the consequences really are of having a society where people, for various reasons, not just romantically, feel so isolated and have such a narrow idea of what, what, what kind of looks make you socially acceptable and a, a viable romantic partner. So, you know, I think there is a there there, and I would like to see more people trying to address these communities in a pro, pro, supportive, productive way as opposed to just surveilling them. Um, but yeah, these terms aren't going anywhere because this phenomenon isn't going anywhere. Yeah, absolutely not. And it's just the way people, it's the way people 
use language. It changes over time. It, this reminds me of the, the conviction of, of, of hate monitoring sites that like the OK symbol mm -hmm. is a is a racist symbol or secret code is mm -hmm. how racists are secretly communicating to you, which starts to get very conspiratorial. Like you're looking through the newspaper pictures for like, oh, there's an OK sign. Yeah. There's another person on the secret list. We did this We're with like, Pepe the Frog. That, I mean, yeah. like, I mean, that was being yeah. used by a certain community, but it also had a right. broader internet reach. And there was then people were using it in a trolling way. And then it started to mean nothing at all. Yeah, and then it's it's then it at, at cer a certain point it serves the interests of the actual committed violent racists to pretend that this thing that everybody is saying or everybody is doing is actually one of their symbols right. because that it makes their community seem right. much larger than it actually is. Which maybe I don't know maybe helps the FBI's mo social media monitors get a bigger budget or something or gives them more to do. But uh, not a not a great use of their time in yeah, my book. For sure, that's my based in red pill take. <laughs> more rising right after this. Yesterday, 25-year-old bank employee Connor Sturgis opened fire at his Louisville, Kentucky workplace, killing five people, all the while live-streaming the attack on Instagram. Now, according to the AP, the shooter legally bought the weapon he used a week ago from a local dealer. That's per local police. Here's Louisville police giving an update. We cannot get into specific details on what we recover at this time because, again, the investigation is ongoing. And we want to make sure that we're providing accurate information. The family deserves that and the community deserves that. We also would like to share that later on this afternoon, we will be releasing body-worn camera footage of the incident. And so that information at the time will be released to you and the location so everyone will be privy to that information. Now, from what we know about the suspect so far is that friend and families called Sturgis friendly with no red flags necessarily, though new reporting is calling out that the former athlete did suffer from multiple concussions. And right. So he was an athlete who apparently played um, high school basketball and was known to always wear a helmet while he played mm. because he had already experienced so many concussions he didn't want ad additional head trauma. Yeah, so that is actually, so I'm going to get back to that in a minute. First, the most relevant factor is he did work at this bank mm -hmm. and he was about to be fired. Mm -hmm. uh, he was being fired. You know, we talk a lot in mass shooting situations about, you know, what are the political motivations or the ideology of the shooter. That always gets a lot of attention from the media. And we argue about how much attention should we actually pay to it. You know, this is this a crazy person? Does it what matter what their views are? Um, I know from looking at statistics that workplace motivated violence is just it it so vastly outnumbers violence for like discernible political ideological mm. reasons it is under discussed um, by comparison so this is so this is actually you know if anyone's reacting like oh wow this never happens actually this is much more common yeah, than it, people killing someone because they don't like your political views or yeah, something. people were pointing out that the a lot of the, the idea of um, you know school shootings happen in schools because there's not People armed with guns in schools. School, you know, shootings never happen at banks because there's people armed and protecting banks or security, and we should arm schools. Some people are saying that this is mm -hmm. an example of why that even is insufficient. You know, if someone can walk into a bank now, this was before the bank was open. It was during some morning meeting that he and his fellow employees were supposed to be having, and this was a, like as you're saying, mm -hmm. a targeted attack. But what could potentially stop something like this? Well. That makes people look at the fact that he was able to buy a gun legally, 
There are no red, 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 ugh, excuse me, red flag laws um, in Kentucky. It's not clear that if there, I'm had, not sure been if there red, had been one, yeah, in this if there had case, been red flag laws, if it would have made a difference. Because although some people have pointed to this concussion stuff, and there, there, some friends or family had indicated that they thought that he was dealing with some mental health issues. It's not clear that that would have raised mm -hmm. to the level of being reported uh, in a way that he could have gotten um, caught. But some people might say. Could, should he have been able to get a gun so quickly? Regardless, there were also some questions about permitting. You're allowed to carry without a permit in Louisiana. Again, not sure that would have made a difference mm -hmm. because who would have caught him beforehand? Um, but these are all questions that, of course, will be percolating as they continue to unpack this. The concussions thing, look, is interesting and, and should be looked at, you know, maybe from, I don't know, from autopsy or if you can tell anything like that. I, I, I think, uh, you know, head trauma can make people behave in really disturbed ways. Um, there is a, a I, this is a theory that some people have about the Texas Tower shooter, if you remember that from decades ago. This was a shooting at mm -hmm. the University of Texas where a sniper um, uh, you went up in the tower and shot, it was a horrible, horrible thing that happened and it was shooting people willy-nilly on the ground. And actually the fact that so many people at the time were armed, actually they were eventually able to like, like he couldn't, he couldn't fire because he, people were shooting back at him. Mm -hmm. so so rapidly, um, but nobody really understood the motivation for the shooting. What it, it, there is a theory that he had a a, uh, a a brain tumor pressing on his brain, mm. and that that is why he could have behaved the way he did. Mm. So th this is what this made me think of. That you know, people yeah, who have terrible it, head trauma. Yeah, it's. I'm sure they'll find out. Of course, later today we're gonna get we're gonna get the body cam footage. Um, Charles Whitman, that was the shooter. Oh, was. interesting. So, you know, st stay tuned, and we'll, we'll find out more about that. Um, and moreover, apparently there was this live stream that was taken down um, that was going on You know, I time. absolutely understand, of course, why the social media companies would immediately take that down. But, uh, and I remember, I, I raised this in the context of a, of a different shooting when, uh, maybe it was me and Kim talking about this a year or so ago, but... If you were in a situation, this, maybe this wasn't the situation here, but if you were in a situation where there's an active shooter and like you're hiding and it's being live well, it streamed, I wouldn't down. necessarily. It wasn't taken down yeah. until after he was dead, apparently. Yeah, I, I, in the, in the, I mean, there could be a real reason for someone like trapped in a building with a mass shooter to like want to be able to right. watch the, I mean, God forbid, obviously, that sounds right. terrible, but. Well, it seems like he was, this, this situation was handled relatively effectively by the Good police. Good response One from the of police. the, the um, uh, at least one of the people shot was, was a police officer. officer that was running toward the uh, shooting. So this is, does not seem like one of those Evalde situations. It seems mm -hmm. like it was handled relatively well. But yeah, I mean, the, the other kind of pattern that is, has emerged is this is another uh, use of an AR-15 style rifle. And of course, there will be questions about whether a different kind of gun that fired less rapidly would have been able to cause as much damage and been as difficult for law enforcement to subdue. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, what we'll be looking at and discussing, obviously. I, I, I wonder if in the wake of Uvalde, it really has finally taken hold at police departments that like, like do not, you know, do not wait around. Do, you have to rush into the sound of gunfire. Um, you're gonna be, you know, you, you don't wanna be in the position of being deservedly humiliated the way the police department was there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, t it's a tough situation. I mean, the gun debate is framed as um, having kind of law enforcement on the side of um, those who are advocating for more expansive gun rights, but they are also the ones that are 
being tasked with running into the face of automatic and semi-automatic weapons uh, that have such incredible killing power. I think it's, it's the last time I, I looked at it, I, I think police unions are somewhat split on it. Really? Some, uh, now, police unions are obviously and probably increasingly as the you know as we as everyone sorts themselves into their correct partisan <laughs> uh, position police unions becoming more associated with republicans even though public employees unions are overwhelmingly uh, democratic coalition uh, so I wonder if that's changing their view on gun because if you're going to be in the tough. Republican coalition, you got to be for uh, for gun rights. But generally, police unions have not been super supportive of yeah. of gun rights. Yeah. One, one last point is worth noting is that we know from the uh, dispatcher audio that the uh, killer left a voicemail saying he felt quote suicidal and quote. And plan to quote kill everyone at the bank. Mm. So there's no real questions about the motive here, anything like that. As you yeah. said, Robbie, it's just a question of whether or not there's any political appetite to do, you know, to support the kind of interventions that might have prevented even a right. someone who's motivated by professional animus and who is going to be fired from getting the tools that he's able to use to, to kill. Right. I mean, but it, it sounds like a big. Who knows in this case, because it, it doesn't sound like there was necessarily a lot to indicate um, that wrongdoing was coming, but yeah. we'll continue to explore that and have more rising after this. The Young Turks co-host Anna Kasparian doubled down on her position that women should not be referred to as birthing persons or persons with uteruses. The progressive media host laughed at criticism she received from friend of the show, Eli Mioloran, regarding comments she made last month calling transgender inclusive language degrading to women. Kasparian responded to Ole saying, laughing out loud, the meltdowns over wanting to be referred to as a woman rather than a birthing person is pretty wild. Never apologize for that, especially as a biological woman who has had a effing lifetime of being told I'm less than. Other progressive journalists and transgender activists are accusing Kasparian of inappropriate timing. Maybe a transgender drag queen running for Congress in 2024 found Kasparian's views troubling, tweeting, I really don't understand why you're still tweeting about this. How many times a day are you being referred to as birthing person in real life, knowing the intense scrutiny and hate trans people are facing right now, along with the hundreds of anti-trans bills? Couldn't you just not? So this, the way we've presented this here, I, it's, not, it's worth noting this is like 40, 75% of the way into when this story actually started. What happened was... Lay it out for us. Yeah, okay. So Ole was like tweeting or, or live streaming or something about the story we covered last week with the two basketball players who both engaged in a kind of, uh, you know, on, on the court antics that was very polarizing at my the time. My favorite story. Right. <laughs> my, my, so much interest I have in it. So Ole was defending um, one of the girls who people on social media were saying look like uh, that character from Ice Age, the the one with the wide set eyes. What? So this is why it's so convoluted what? and silly. So Ole was basically saying, don't make fun of this girl's looks. And she was doing a stream about that and that some people are haters and haters need to leave this girl alone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Stop drinking the haterade. In the context of that, <laughs> that post, Anna Kasparian swoops in and replies, oh, haters like you? And Ole responds, question mark, like, what are you talking about? I'm not talking about you. This has nothing to do with you, right? Then Anna Kasparian replies with a video of Ole from like a week before on another podcast of hers having a conversation about the whole Anna Kasparian trans statement back when it happened, saying that 
she, she, you know, she didn't agree with uh, Anna Kasparian's statements, and basically that she felt like some members of the left community were having a kid gloves as they criticized Anna Kasparian because she's a woman within the left community, that white women get special treatment and sensitivity, and making that kind of argument against Anna Kasparian. So Ole's like, wait a minute. You've just been sitting on that and thinking about this for a week. I, you know, stop mm. just, I, I'm not even talking about the trans stuff right now. I'm just talking about this basketball player. So this whole thing blew up. And Ole ended up ultimately responding with a video of Anna Kasparian from over a year ago, in which Anna Kasparian actually makes a very compelling argument for why it, like inclusive language like birthing persons has its place and that people have an opportunity to use it, pointing out that Anna Kasparian herself has had a really hardcore shift on this particular issue and now seems to not understand why people use that language. Of course, Anna Kasparian has the right to be called whatever she wants to be called if she doesn't want to be referred to as a birthing person. It's not clear to me who exactly is referring to her as a birthing person, but I and I think others are more than happy to continue to refer to her as a woman as we all have been Maybe doing Maybe she had an experience time. where that came up and that's why she doesn't like it. And she, she, she was neutral before, but now... <laughs> she has yet to uh, point to that experience. how demeaning and After, after weeks and weeks of talking about it, she has yet to point to that experience. So again, like, I, I don't know. This is one of those, those things where it's like... Why are we even, like, why is this an issue? It seems to be an issue because Anna Kasparian keeps bringing it up, even in, t in moments where literally nobody was talking about her and nobody was talking about this. She seems to really still have this chip on her shoulder and or some people have argued that it generates a lot of clicks and attention to, you know, characterize yourself as a, as a victim of language in this way. So that being said, what do you make of it all? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not healthy uh, to be holding on to clips, like having like a little storage <laughs> folder where you got attacked by Oliami. I, mean, I can't imagine my folder would be overflowing by now. Um, uh, this is a folder on her desktop that says L's. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not, you know, everybody's got to step away from this thing we do every now and then. Yeah. You just got to let it roll off you. Yeah. Um, if you if you take it too personally or you stay mad at people, it's not it's not healthy. I think, well, we were talking about this before the show started today. Like, I think social media, I, I'm against the view that social media is just this very bad thing and it's very bad for everyone. I think that's like a moral panic. I think there are a lot of ways it improves a lot of people's lives, gives you access to information, entertainment, puts you in conversation with a lot of people beyond what we were able to do. But look, some people are too online. Some yeah. people's mental health, some people's mental health is clearly impacted by living on this space. Not ours, we're very healthy. <laughs> Not we can, ours, we of course. We can quit whenever we want. <laughs> we're, we're doing it right. We're so mentally healthy, uh, it's unbelievable. But some people would benefit from stepping away more, just like not paying attention to what the haters or anyone is saying. Uh, but now our entire business model sometimes is like reacting to what sure. other people are saying. We You're do a lot of reacting it, yeah. to it. Viewers like reaction, so that's part of the the model of doing this. But you you just you kind of have to have a, a thick skin. Although again, I agree with what Anna Kasparian is saying about these terms and the clinical. She is allowed to be called a woman. In ugly fact, nature. maybe the best response. Maybe people should just take to the internet. <laughs> and under all of her posts, say uh, just affirm her, woman, 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 just like woman her, 
<laughs> into complacency. I, I, I want to make mm -hmm. it really clear, in case anybody was thinking about referring to Anna Kasparian as anything other than a woman, well, that is inappropriate. She has made her preferences very clear, and well, but, gosh darn it. <laughs> but you're kind of, I mean, but this is kind of interesting, because you're sort of making fun of no, the idea I, of someone demanding being referred to a certain way, I, I which is the entire conservative no. criticism of pronouns and Au everything. Contraire. I sincerely am begging, <laughs> begging everyone to use Anna Kasparian's preferred identification. I want nothing more than for Anna Kasparian to only ever hear herself referred to as a woman for the rest of her life, unless uh, she changes her identification, which is her right to do. Okay, we should all, you know, be... It's good to be polite to people. I don't know. I'm, I'm making these really yes. mundane observations. I, it, be nice to people. Generally describe them the way they want to be described. I also think people get like who, again, on both sides of this, I don't. I think when conservatives get like way too bent out of shape over pronouns, it's kind of silly. I also think when pronoun people get way too bent out of shape about it, it's really like obnoxious. Like, is yeah, this so the first you, thing you, you need to tell me about yourself, people honestly? People were mad at um, um, Sam Smith, the singer, uh, there's this clip that was going around where he was talking about how much he likes fishing and how he wants to be a fisher then. Oh, God. And so people, look, even, even oh leftists, God. even people who fully respect pronouns can, like, wink and smile and say, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a funny word. I think even Sam Smith, he had a twinkle in his eye when he said it. He appreciates that it's, it's a funny thing, a fisher them, a fisherman. Not a, look at me, more attention, I need more attention. Right, like, so, like, we're all human beings here, we get it. And I, and I will say, I just interviewed on Monday on my podcast, uh, Bad Faith, Aaron Reed, who we interviewed here as well, who has been following the hundreds of anti-trans bills that have come down the pike just this year alone, and has been doing a really good job of it. But I also asked her some tough questions about the parts of this that are harder, I think, for the left to defend, including Specifically, the first 30 minutes or so of the conversation was about um, trans women in sports and how to deal with the fundamental reality that sports are, are sex segregated, not gender segregated, but sex segregated because of differences between the sexes and the inability of, on, on the aggregate, women to compete um, with men, you know, people who were assigned women at birth, female at birth to compete with people who were assigned male uh, at birth. And how can you ever, without completely undermining the idea of sex-segregated sports, deal with the advantages that mm. trans women have? And we talked about the Olympics efforts to get at these issues and you know hormone-level requirements and whether or not those meet the metrics and whether those are insufficient. And, and we had some good back and forth about that. So there are some hard issues here. I'm not going to yeah. deny that. I, I do think that, though, the kind of this manufactured idea there's something manufactured about the idea that the average woman who identifies as a woman, who's a cis woman, is, is being constantly asked to identify as something else outside of perhaps some forms in a hospital somewhere that, yes, are intended to accommodate everybody, including people who might feel differently than you. And so including, occasionally you're going to have to have that inconvenience. Including Fisher thems. <laughs> Give them a fish. Okay. They'll eat for a day. All right. Teach them to fish. They'll okay. eat for a lifetime. When, when I find a medical treatment that is specific for fisher them and that requires it to be on a form, then I will I will uh, defend fisher them on medical forms. Until then, let's leave it for the internet. Okay. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back same time, same place to bring you another fantastic show. Appreciate and uh, yeah. Yeah. You gotta like, share, and subscribe so that people. 
see this content, you don't want to miss it, not, not a single second. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are, of course, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends. See you later. Bye-bye.